Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Amen. Jesus lives. And though we no longer fear death, often the path to death strikes us with fear because of pain and sorrow and suffering. And so one of a pastor's greatest responsibilities and duties for his people is to teach them how to suffer. And that's why we're going through the book of Ruth. So if you would make your way there, we will learn once again about the sweet and bitter providence of God over our lives. And though we don't fear death, the pathway there is often hard, and we should not fear it because we serve a good and sovereign God. And let's go to him in prayer now before we look at his word. Father, thank you that we no longer fear the grave because of the life and death and resurrection and the ascension of your Son and his coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords, and we anticipate his return when the sons of God will be revealed in glory. All creation is waiting for that moment, and we are waiting for that moment. But God, as we wait for that moment, we know that this life is hard, and there's pain, and there are tears, and there's sadness, and sorrow, and death. And many times, though we don't fear death, we fear the pathway to death. So would you come and encourage our hearts once again from your word. Remind us that you are not only sovereign, but that you are good. And that everything that you do is good. And that you are indeed working all things for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ashlyn Blocker's parents and kindergarten teachers all describe her the same way. Fearless. So they nervously watch her plunge full tilt into a childhood deprived of natural alarms. In the school cafeteria, teachers put five-year-old Ashlyn's, uh, inside five-year-old Ashlyn's chili, they put ice cubes. If her lunch is scalding hot, she will gulp it down anyway. On the playground, a teacher's aide watches Ashlyn from within 15 feet, keeping her off the jungle gym and giving chase when she runs. If she takes a hard fall, Ashlyn won't cry. Ashlyn is among a tiny number of people in the world known to have congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis or SIPA, C-I-P-A a rare genetic disorder that makes her unable to feel pain. Some people would say that's a good thing, but no, it's not, says Tara Blocker, Ashlyn's mother. Pain's there for a reason. It lets your body know something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. I'd give anything for her to feel pain. The untreatable disease also makes Ashlyn incapable of sensing extreme temperatures, hot or cold, disabling her body's ability to cool itself by sweating. 
Otherwise, her senses are normal. Ashlyn can feel the texture of nickels and dimes she sorts into piles on her bedroom floor, the heft of the pink backpack that she totes to school, and the embrace of a hug. She feels hunger cravings for her favorite after-school snack, pickles and strawberry milk. That's because the genetic mutation that causes SEPA only disrupts the development of these small nerve fibers that carry sensations of pain, heat, and cold to the brain. There are all kinds of different nerve cells that help us feel different sensations, says Dr. Felicia Axelrod, a professor of pediatrics and neurology at New York University School of Medicine. You can have one sense removed, just like you can lose your hearing, but still smell things. Ashlyn cannot feel pain. And many of us, in fact, probably all of us, would love to function like Ashlyn as disciples. We don't want pain. We don't want suffering. We long to be like Ashlyn. We want that sensation of pain to be gone out of our lives. We could do without it, right? But as Ashlyn's mother stated, some people would say that's a good thing to not be able to feel pain. But no, it's not. Pain's there for a reason. It lets your body know something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. I'd give anything for her to feel pain. All of us would love to live a life free of suffering and pain but that's not reality. We live in a fallen, broken world that our first parents, Adam and Eve, messed up when they disobeyed the good commandments of a good God. And so now we live in a world that they messed up. We will suffer. We will suffer pain. There is no way to get around it if you're alive in this world. The problem, though, is that when we do suffer, when we do experience sorrow and and pain and grief, we tend to let our suffering and our sorrow and our pain and our grief define our understanding of God. When we suffer and experience pain, we often let our feelings dictate to us what God is like. And that's exactly what we'll see Naomi do today as she comes to grips with the fact that she lost her husband and her two boys. And even though they were grown men, we saw several weeks ago that they were, in her eyes, still her babies. What do we do when we suffer and experience pain and loss? What do we do when we receive those thorns in the flesh whereby we cry out to God for relief? Here's what you should not do, and it's our big idea today. Never let your pain paint your picture of God. Never let the pain that you feel in your life Paint your picture of God. Our tendency as human beings is to let our circumstances and our situations define our God. Our tendency is to let our pain and loss define God. Our tendency is not to let Scripture paint the picture of God. Our tendency is to do a painting 
of God. And that's exactly what Naomi does in our text today. Remember last week we saw that Ruth and Orpah, Moabite widows and daughters-in-law of Naomi, uh, decided to stay with their mother-in-law. Instead of staying home in Moab, they decided to travel back with her to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown. It was an act of hesed, that, that Hebrew word, which is hard to describe. It means loyal covenant love, or as our English translations translate it, steadfast love. They showed her hesed. Loyal covenant love by sticking by her side and, and starting the journey back to her hometown of Bethlehem, even though they weren't even from there. And then Naomi stops them on that dirt road and gives them three reasons why they shouldn't stick with her. This is Naomi's longest speech in the book of Ruth. So we really get a sense of what was happening inside of her heart as she begins to talk to her daughter's She will call them three times in this passage her daughters, and she will give them three reasons why they should not stay with her. So look at reason number one in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Naomi is saying, I don't have any children right now. I'm not currently pregnant. In fact, the Hebrew, literally, she says, do I have any more sons in my guts for you to marry? Reason number one, I'm not even pregnant right now. Reason number two, look at verse 12 through 13b. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Naomi is saying, I'm too old to even remarry at this point. Too old to have any more children. And even if I could get married, even if I could have kids, would you wait 14, 16, 18, 20 years for them? Naomi is basically saying, it's too late for me to turn back the clock. Girls, go on and marry some nice upstanding Moabite boy, you would be better off doing that than sticking with this old lady. And I don't even know if she could have kids. Who got first dibs? You know, as I read the passage, I thought, would they, would they thumb war here? For who gets the first child? I'm saying, you know what, this is not a good situation. Go back to your home. Go back to your families. And then she gives reason number three in verse 13c. She gives the real reason. She gives the raw reason underlying her desire to send her daughters away. She says, no, my daughters. The third time she's called them her daughters. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Notice that Naomi answers her own questions with a resounding no. Have I yet, you know, sons in my womb? No, no. Uh, Even if I could have a husband and bear sons, would you wait? No, she says emphatically. In Hebrew, it's, it's emphatic. She's saying, no, no, no. You will not return with me. And then she gives the reason for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Two observations here. 
First, what Naomi is saying here is, I am too bitter for you. My suffering is too intense for you. My bitterness is greater than yours. My loss, my suffering is greater than your loss, girls. Naomi says, my whole life is full of bitterness. Naomi truly believed that her life was bitter and she did not want her daughters-in-law to have and to experience that kind of bitterness. Naomi says, my life is so bitter that I'm afraid it's gonna spill over into your life. Naomi is saying, I have bitter old woman disease and I am contagious. If you stay with me, you will become bitter like me. Second observation, Naomi's heart is exposed here. She believes that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is the cause of her bitterness. She blames God for her problems. Naomi feels as if she has a target on her back and God is aiming at her. This is where Naomi errs. This is where she makes mistakes. She mentions the Lord, but she has a skewed and twisted and perverted understanding of him. Because the phrase that Naomi uses here, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, suggests opposition and hostility. She thinks that God is is opposed to her and that his feelings towards her are one of hostility. She is picturing the Lord as a divine warrior who is marching out to battle to bring calamity upon her. Naomi is a bitter old woman who blames God for her crisis. Naomi feels that she has a target on her back and that God is responsible. Naomi thinks that the Lord is marching toward her on the battlefield ready to take her out. Naomi is clear about her troubles. God is the cause and he is to blame. And this is tragic. Naomi is wrong to place blame on the Lord. Earlier, Naomi had prayed Yahweh's blessing on Ruth and Orpah that they would leave and go home and find husbands, but now she turns around and blames God for her bitterness. Naomi accuses God of injustice toward her. She accuses him of wrongdoing. Listen, Grace, do not do what Naomi does. Do not blame God for your sorrows and pain. Do not blame God and accuse him of injustice when thorns come into your life. Never let your pain paint your picture of God. Naomi would affirm God's sovereignty. She believes that God is in control and able to bless Ruth and Orpah with new husbands. Naomi's issue is not with God's sovereignty. Naomi's problem is with God's goodness. 
Naomi is allowing her experience and her circumstances and her pain and her suffering and her sorrow and her grief to be the brush that paints her picture of God. She is right. She is correct in affirming God's sovereignty, but she is dead wrong in accusing him of injustice. She is dead wrong in not seeing him as a good and gracious and covenant keeping God. You see, we all, like Naomi, I hope, have a solid understanding and grip of God's sovereignty, that God is in control of every single minute detail in this world, from moments and situations in our lives to every particle and atom and molecule. He knows and is in control of everything, and I hope you embrace that, and I hope you believe that. But I fear what we often struggle with the most is not God's sovereignty, but God's goodness. That we often struggle with the goodness of God. Let me share with you the stories of two men. One man came to grips with the sovereignty and the goodness of God, and the other man tragically turned away. The first man's name is Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was once a close friend and ministry partner of Billy Graham. But questions about God's goodness caused him to turn away from God and turn into a man bitterly opposed to Christianity. In his book, A Case for Faith, Lee Strobel describes his encounter and interview with Templeton. Was there one thing in particular that caused you to lose your faith in God? I asked at the outset. He thought for a moment. It was a photograph in Life magazine, he said finally. Really, I said, a photograph? How so? He narrowed his eyes a bit and looked off to the side as if he were viewing the photo afresh and reliving the moment. It was a picture of a black woman in northern Africa, he explained. They were experiencing a devastating drought and she was holding her dead baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it and I thought, is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? As he emphasized the word rain, His bushy gray eyebrows shot up and his arms gestured toward heaven as if beckoning for a response. How could a loving God do this to that woman? He implored as he got more animated, moving to the edge of his chair. Who runs the rain? I don't, you don't, he does. Or that's what I thought. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew it is not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain? He paused, letting the question hang heavily in the air. Then he settled back into his chair. That was the climactic moment, he said. And then I began to think further about the world being the creation of God. I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill, more often than not, painfully, all kinds of people. The ordinary, the decent, and the rotten. And it just became crystal clear to me that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves 
That's the wrong way to respond to pain. That's the wrong way to respond to pains and thorns in our flesh and the sufferings that we experience. Someone needed to come alongside Charles Templeton and to tell him, never let your pain paint your picture of God. But there's another man, George Mueller, who came to grips with God's sovereignty and God's goodness at the same time. Mueller was a pastor who cared for thousands of orphans in his lifetime. Here's how he dealt with the thorn of losing his wife. And he preached her funeral sermon. His biographer, A.T. Pearson, describes the funeral message and how Mueller handled preaching the funeral message of his wife. He says, that funeral sermon was a noble tribute to the goodness of the Lord, even in the great affliction of his life. The text was Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and do good. Its three divisions were, the Lord was good and did good. First, in giving her to me. Second, in so long, leaving her to me. And third, in taking her from me. That's how you deal with the pain, the thorns in this fallen, broken world. You cling to the sovereignty and the goodness of God. You cling to Psalm 119.68 and you do not let go of that truth. You are good and you do good. You hold on to that truth and you grab hold of it and, and like a pit bull you sink your truth, your teeth down into that truth. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter, no matter what thoughts come into your mind, maybe even people are telling you and screaming at you that God is not good and you sink your teeth into that truth and you say you are good and you do good. God is sovereign. He is in control and he is good. It's, it's like a coin. On one side you have God's sovereignty and on the other side you have his goodness. And this is exactly the truth that Joseph held on to and would not let go of all those years after his brothers had sold him into slavery. And even after the first reunion, you get to the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 50. And it's been some 17 years since Joseph first revealed himself to his brothers. And after their dad dies, his brothers get scared. Now he's going to do business. Now he's going to take us out. Now he's going to seek revenge. What truth had Joseph been hanging on to those 17 years since he first encountered them? He tells them in Genesis 50, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. What people, what Satan, what this broken world intends for evil, God intends for good, and he will work in and through and purpose in and through everything that happens in your life to bring about good, and his purposes are always accomplished. Hold on to that truth in the midst of your pain and the thorn that not only presses into your flesh, but that presses into your very heart. In Psalm 116.10, this is what the psalmist does. He says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Even, the, even though the psalmist was afflicted, he could cry out, I still believe in you. 
I am afflicted. I have a thorn in my flesh, but I still believe in you. I believed when I went around telling everyone, I am greatly afflicted. I still believed. I was telling everyone, I am greatly afflicted, but I still believe in you. That's how Naomi should have responded. She should have said, Oh Lord, you were good in giving my husband and my two sons to me. You were good in leaving them with me so long. And you were good in taking them away from me. Everything that you do, O Yahweh, is good. I am afflicted. I am hurt. I am sad. I do not understand, but I believe. See, the danger for us is when we let our pain paint our understanding and our picture of God instead of letting God's word do that. God knows who he is. He has told us who he is in his word. Circumstances will change, but it's the word of the Lord that endures forever. Which is why Victor Hamilton, a commentator, says Naomi is making the mistake that many loyal but hurting believers have committed, interpreting and trying to figure out God in light of our circumstances, rather than interpreting and trying to figure out our circumstances in light of God and his character. God is sovereign, and God is good. Naomi appeared a few verses back as someone that we thought might have a robust view of God because she prayed that her daughters-in-law would would find uh, security in the arms of new husbands. She prayed, may Yahweh bring you new husbands to take care of you and to provide for you. But Naomi's faith, and it's faith, but it's wobbling on crutches at this point. It's still faith because she mentions Yahweh. But it's a faith that is wobbling. Instead of listening to the words of God, Naomi is listening to her experience, listening to her own thoughts, listening to her grief, listening to her sorrow, listening to her suffering, listening to her pain. Never let your pain paint your picture of God. What Naomi needed to do was to open the eyes of faith. To say, I am greatly afflicted, but I still believe. What she needed to do was to open her eyes and to see that God's goodness to her was standing right in front of her. Look at verse 14. And then Orpah, Naomi, and Ruth lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And you could put it in parentheses there, goodbye, because we'll see in verse 15 that she leaves. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. These three widows come together once again to weep and to wail loudly. It's the same word we saw last week in verse 9 that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe when people are, are seriously weeping when a tragedy occurs. 
They are crying. They are weeping. They are sobbing. They are bawling. They are getting out the Kleenex. There's tears and, and, and snot, and it's getting all over their clothes, and they're hugging and embracing and kissing, and they are weeping. And then something very interesting happens. Orpah decides to leave. Orpah, this Moabite widow who looked so promising by sticking with Naomi, or as we saw earlier, showing her Hesed, loyal covenant love, she now decides to leave. She decides to leave her mother-in-law, Naomi. I mentioned at the beginning of this series that names are very significant in the book of Ruth, and Orpah's name is very interesting too. Orpah's name comes from the Hebrew root word, which means back of the neck. Orpah's name means back of the neck. Who names their baby girl back of the neck? (laughs) Back of the neck Magnus just doesn't really have a ring to it. But it's interesting because Orpah lives up to her name because the last thing we see of her is the back of her neck as she heads back home to Moab. Unfortunately for Orpah, she has listened to Naomi's reasons and ceased demonstrating that hesed, that steadfast love. Orpah was convinced by Naomi's three arguments. She says, maybe it would be better for me to, to leave this bitter old woman and go back home. So Miss Back of the Neck takes off for Moab and leaves old, needy, widowed Naomi behind. Orpah is what we would call a flat character. She stands in contrast to how Ruth will turn out. As they stand side by side at this moment in the story, we see that the character of Ruth far exceeds that of Orpah. So what does the text say about Ruth? Even though Naomi's excuses and reasons were piled up and, and seemingly very valid, Ruth decides to Cling to Naomi, her mother-in-law. The word cling is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 when it says that a husband shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. She is clinging to her mother-in-law. Why? Because Ruth's name means friendship or companion. Ruth lives up to her name in a positive way, in contrast to Orpah, Miss Back of the Neck, who lives up to her name. Ruth clings to Naomi. It was evidence of God's goodness to Naomi. It's there, Naomi. Just open your eyes. Naomi needed to open her eyes and see that God had provided Ruth, Miss Friendship, Miss Companion, to cling to her in her worst hour. Naomi needed to open her eyes and see God's goodness and cling to his promises by faith. And that's what we need to do too. When you go through hardship and you think that God does not care, open your eyes. When you go through hardship and you think that God does not care, open your eyes. He is working for your good. That thorn 
that has pierced your flesh and has pierced your heart may very well be a blessing in disguise. Let me say that again. That thorn that has pierced your flesh, pierced your heart, may be a blessing in disguise. That's what Martha Nicholson describes in her poem, The Thorn. She says, I stood a mendicant or beggar. I stood a beggar of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and I gave my best to thee. I took it home and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. The thorn, the pain that you feel is what God uses to pin back the veil that you may be able to see him more clearly. So trust him. Trust him. Trust him, grace. He uses pain and tragedy to bring you good and glory to his name. He uses pain. Pain does not use God. Pain submits to God's sovereignty. God doesn't come along at the last minute when you have pain and say, oh my goodness, what can I do with this situation? He uses pain to pin back the veil that you may see him more clearly. Remember, pain is there for a reason. Pain is there to tell us that something is wrong. There is something wrong with this world It is broken. It is fallen. And that's why we experience pain, because of sin. But God sent his son to fix our pain and to experience pain himself. God stuck a thorn. He stuck a crown of thorns into the brow of his son, Jesus. He stuck a thorn in the side of Jesus. He stuck metal thorns, if you will, into the hands and feet of his son. And he poured out his holy, just wrath on his one and only son in order to make us sons and daughters. That's what this table and these elements represent this morning. Is that God would allow his son to experience pain, to redeem us and to redeem the pain that we experience in this world. And God himself experienced great pain as he turned away from his son and punished him for everything that both you and I have done or ever will do. Never let your pain 
paint your picture of God. Let the pain that Jesus endured for you and let the pain that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit experienced as they watched the sinless Son of God bear the penalty for all of our sins, let that pain paint your picture of God, that He is sovereign and that He is good. Let the pain that Jesus endured thoroughly convince you that God is good. And may God give us eyes of faith this morning to see, and then as we take of these elements, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Oh God, we confess that so many times when we experience pain, suffering and sorrow and grief and sadness that we want to extend our finger to you and point to you and to blame you and to accuse you of wrongdoing. Would you forgive us of that? Thank you, Father, that Jesus died for our sin of blaming you for pain. That Jesus died in our place for our sin of not believing your word, of not believing that you are sovereign and good. Thank you that Jesus died for that very sin among so many more. Thank you, God, for the pain that you endured as your heart broke to turn away from your son, as your spirit was grieved to see your son taking our sin, to see him bear the penalty of our sins. Thank you for that pain. May that pain paint our picture of you, that you are, in fact, good. Would you give us more of your grace today as we partake of these elements? May you empower us once again to believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.